It may be the death of a spouse or some other loved one or meaningful person in one's life. It may be the result of war. It may be the loss of health or the loss of one's financial security. But times come to the life of everyone when the world collapses. What do we do in times like that? Well, I believe that Daniel gives us a wonderful example of what to do when one's world collapses. When life comes to an end as it always has been. To understand how Daniel is an example of this, we need to think a little bit about the background of this book of Daniel. We need to back up, actually, about 400 years. You may recall that David reigned over the whole nation of Israel after the death of Saul. He was a man after God's own heart, and God blessed the reign of David. He was a man who made some mistakes. There were times when he sinned against God. He was forgiven because of his repentance and confession. But he also paid some consequences because of his sin. When David died, he left the kingdom to Solomon, who reigned in his stead. In the beginning, Solomon was a good king. But in the end, Solomon departed from the Lord and made a mess of his life and made a mess of the nation. For upon his death, the nation of Israel divided into two. There was the southern kingdom that adopted the name Judah, that was reigned over by Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. Two tribes, essentially, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Then there was the northern kingdom, That was called Israel, or sometimes it was called Samaria, because Samaria became its capital city. The first king was Jeroboam. And in all of the history, some 200 plus years of the northern kingdom, there was not one single king who honored God and obeyed him. The northern kingdom, eventually, because of its apostasy, came under the judgment of God and went into captivity. The nation of Assyria, Assyria, came against Israel, Samaria, in 722 and destroyed the nation. The people were scattered throughout their empire. They brought in Assyrians to live with those few Israelites who were left, and they intermarried and became what were called Samaritans who were hated by the full-blooded Jews from that day onward, and we see that in the Gospels, don't we? The kingdom of Judah, however, the southern kingdom, existed beyond that. They too had their share of wicked kings. In fact, most of them were wicked, but there were eight who were godly. The last of them was a man by the name of Josiah. You may remember him because he reigned beginning at the age of eight. Josiah reigned for some 31 years over the nation of Israel. Through the influence and assistance of his mentor, the priest, 
Josiah had a remarkable impact upon the nation of Judah. He undertook the rebuilding of the temple. And as they were doing that, perhaps as they were involved with some of the basic stones of the temple building itself, they came across a scroll, which was the Law of Moses. It seems incredible, but that law had been lost along the way. It was common in that day for nations to put important documents in the cornerstone of, of buildings, such as the temple. <clears throat> that's still done occasionally today in time capsules. Well, apparently that's what happened. They broke open this time capsule, if you please, and found that book of the law. And they brought it to Josiah. And when he heard the law of God, he tore his clothing and commanded that the whole nation should hear this law of God. And he himself read it before the people. And there was repentance in the nation. There was reform in the nation. They reestablished their covenant with God. Josiah kicked out all of the spiritists and the mediums that had uh, grown up in the nation and had been used by the people in their apostasy. Uh, the nation, generally speaking, turned back to God under the leadership of Josiah. When he was 39 years of age, though, Josiah made a mistake, and it proved to be a fatal mistake. Perhaps the greatest power in the world at that time was uh, Egypt. And Pharaoh Neco, N-E-C-O, as he was called, was uh, going to battle against Babylon, an upcoming power, a power that was being renewed to the north and east of Israel. And in order to do battle with him, of course, he had to pass through the land of Judah. And uh, the king of Judah, Josiah, apparently in order to try to gain some favor from this growing power to his north and east, Babylon, decided to go out to do war against Pharaoh Necho to try to stop him before he went on to do his battle with Babylon. And in the course of the battle, Josiah was shot with an arrow and died. The nation mourned greatly because of the loss of this godly young leader. And in his place, they chose his second son, whose name was Jehoahaz. Now, Jehoahaz, or Shalom as he was also called, was an evil man. Uh, he lasted, however, only a brief time. Because, you see, after the king of Egypt had gone on and done his battle with Babylon, he came back through uh, Judah and Jerusalem. And he removed Jehoahaz after just three months on the throne and took him away to Egypt, captive, and put in his place his older brother, the first son of Josiah, Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was also a very evil man. The people had chosen the second son because they felt he was better, apparently. But now, after just three months, they had the man that they did not want, <clears throat> and that was Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was an evil king. It is interesting, isn't it, that a man can be a godly man, a good leader of his nation, 
and yet somehow along the way lose the influence of his children. There's a lesson for all of us parents. Jehoiakim began to reign in 608 B.C. Because he was placed on the throne by the king of Egypt, Pharaoh Necho, he paid heavy tribute to the king of Egypt for three years. And uh, then he got tired of that and uh, sort of rebelled against having to pay that. I should explain during this time of his reign, Jeremiah was preaching in Jerusalem. And there was bitter feeling in Jehoiakim regarding Jeremiah. In fact, at one point, he burned one of the scrolls of Jeremiah that pronounced judgment upon him. He was a man who, while he was raising this tribute from the people to pay to Egypt, also built himself a lavish palace, which was a detestable thing to the people of uh, Judah. In that sense, he sort of reminded me as I was reading about him of Ceceshu in uh, Romania, who in the midst of the great poverty of his people was just milking them in order to enrich himself. And you've read the stories probably about the palace uh, there that he built in uh, Bucharest and in which he lived in luxury while his people are in incredible poverty. Well, Jehoiakim was that kind of a man. In 605 B.C., in his third year, the Egyptians again went to battle against Babylon. The place that they did battle was Carchemish, which was a rather famous city in that day, an area. And uh, the Egyptians were defeated by the Babylonian army at this point. Uh, In fact, never again did Egypt arise to the greatness that it had known in the many centuries before that. It really did end the Egyptians. They never have recovered to this day from the Battle of Carchemish in 605 B.C. The general of the army of Babylon was the prince of the nation, who was reigning uh, in sort of a co-regency with his father, Nabopolassar. The prince's name was Nebuchadnezzar. Now, he enters into the story of Daniel, as you well know. Nebuchadnezzar marched further south from Carchemish and entered into the land of Palestine, came to the city of Jerusalem, and uh, attacked it. Because, you see, Jerusalem was paying tribute to Egypt, and he was just going to wipe up some of the spoils of the land. He uh, took some booty from the city. He also took some of the young men prisoner, took them captive, sent them back to Babylon, there to serve in the court of the king. It was not long after all of this happened that he got word that his father had died. And he rushed back to Babylon to be crowned the king of Babylon in September of 605. So that gives you a little bit of background regarding this man that we're going to read about and the nation of Babylon. By the way, Babylon came against Jerusalem 
three different times before it finally took away the nation uh, entirely, destroyed it, destroyed the temple. Uh, they came the first time in this one we've talked about in 605 B.C., after the Battle of Carchemish, when they defeated the Egyptians. And then it was several years later that they came again in 597 B.C. And again, they deported some of the best and the brightest of the nation, among them Ezekiel. And then once more, a final time, in 586, the armies of Babylon came against Jerusalem, and this time they obliterated the city, destroyed it, and took the Jews into captivity to Babylon. Now we want to come to Daniel chapter 1, and with that bit of historical background, perhaps what is said here will kind of fall into place for you a little more. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, now it's 605, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Notice Daniel calls him the king. This is a proleptic use of the word king. In other words, at the time that he actually came to do the battle, he was the prince, he was the leading general, but he then became the king. And so Daniel refers to him as the king. <clears throat> the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. There's the booty. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, that is, to Babylon, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. The God of Babylon was the god Marduk, which some of you will recognize if you've studied world history or world religions. One of the main gods of the ancient Mesopotamian pantheon. And it says, the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials or his eunuchs, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans, Again, another name for Babylon, especially in this period of its history. And the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. To Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. And so he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. <clears throat> now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? 
Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days, and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, their appearance seemed better, than, and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine <clears throat> they were to drink, and kept giving them vegetables. And as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then, at the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them, and out of them all not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. And as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten, ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus, the king. That is, Daniel lived throughout the whole period of Babylon's greatness and until the first years of Cyrus, who was the king of Persia, the nation that uh, then became prominent in the world after Babylon. But that will all come to pass as we study through the book of Daniel. I want you to think with me this evening, just briefly, how Daniel's whole world collapsed. How everything was changed for this young man. The language that is used here would indicate to us that Daniel was a young teenager, probably about 15 years of age, when all of these events befell him. Now remember that during his early teen years, or his late uh, <clears throat> youth, his preteen years, there was a lot of political turmoil in the nation. Daniel was evidently one of the sons of the nobility of the nation, uh, maybe even uh, of royalty. There are some who say that he was a descendant of King Hezekiah, who was the grandfather of Josiah. And so Daniel was a part of the, the leading aristocracy, if you please, of the land of Judah. And so all of the intrigue and the coming of Pharaoh Necho and the tribute being paid to, to Egypt and Jehoahaz being taken away to Egypt and this evil king Jehoiakim, all of that undoubtedly had a tremendous impact upon his family. And then 605 came. And Daniel is one of those who is selected and is taken away from his family, from his city, his land, to a far-off place called Shinar, to the land of the Chaldeans, to the capital city of Babylon, never to go back again 
to the land in which he was raised. As far as we know, never to see his family again. He was taken away at the age of 15. He was taken away from a culture that, uh, at least in some sense, worshipped Yahweh, the true God, to a culture that was very pagan, that had a pantheon of many gods that they worshipped. Obviously, the culture was quite different. You need to understand that all of this had been predicted by God's prophets. God had warned his people again and again and again that if they persisted in their rebellion against him, that he would come and these things would happen. Let me show you an example. Isaiah prophesied about a hundred years before this. Look in Isaiah chapter 39. Isaiah is here speaking to King Hezekiah, whom we mentioned a few moments ago, who is counted among the good kings of Judah. And he says in verse 5, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons, who shall issue from you, whom you shall beget, shall be taken away, and they shall become officials, again here the word is eunuchs, in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now think of this. This is a couple of generations before Daniel's day. A hundred years or so. And God has warned his people, this is going to come to pass. And yet they did not listen to the word of God. And now Daniel is among those youths, taken away in fulfillment of Isaiah's words to serve the king of Babylon. As I said before, they took the brightest, they took the best away from Jerusalem. And then from the language here in Daniel chapter 1, it is quite probable that Daniel was emasculated. And in that uh, sense, became a literal eunuch. That was not uncommon at all in that day with this kind of a prisoner. And so in addition to losing his family, losing the culture in which he had grown up, uh, leaving behind the city that he had come to love, the city of Jerusalem, with its great temple that Solomon had built, Daniel probably at this point lost his identity as a male. He then was put into a crash course of uh, an education program to indoctrinate him into the philosophies and the culture of Babylon. Uh, in all kinds of literature and philosophy and science and medicine and history and above everything else, magic. Uh, he was to be educated for three years along with all the other young men who had been taken prisoner. Now the purpose of this, understand, was to remove any vestige of his prior culture, his prior beliefs. It was to make him a thoroughgoing Babylonian. It was to remove any influence of the God of his fathers and to cause him now to become uh, 
one who was fully identified with all that was truly Babylonian. He was to be a Babylonian person. You need to remember that these people were quite advanced for their day. This Neo-Babylonian period that we're talking about here under Nebuchadnezzar inherited a great deal of knowledge. Nebuchadnezzar had a fabulous library in the city of Babylon. Uh, it was the, all of the writings and the research that had been done by the Assyrians and uh, those nations, the Sumerians and so on, who lived in this part of Mesopotamia uh, in the centuries before. In Daniel's day, he would have been educated in uh, science and among the scientific discoveries uh, that they shared in were how to calculate time. They discovered uh, and employed a seven-day week in Babylon. And uh, have you ever looked at your watch and noticed that it has 12 hours on it? And we count that twice in order to make a full day? Why, is, why doesn't it say 24? Why does it say 12? You ever thought about that? Isn't that a, a probing thought? <laughs> well, seriously, have you ever thought why it's just 12 on your watch? Well, the answer goes all the way back to then. Because they devised uh, the fact that each day, night and then uh, light, each day is composed, they said, of 12 periods. They calculated uh, these periods in what we would call double hours of 120 minutes. But that's why we have 12 on our watches today because of what they, do, they decided back there in the time of, of Daniel in Babylon, that a day is 12 periods of 120 minutes, not 24 periods of 60 minutes. They did a lot of research in the area of astronomy. They recorded all kinds of data. They watched for eclipses and anything that was unusual in the heavens. Now this was mainly to predict the future. And this kind of folded over into their religion and into their magic, which was astrology, which God, of course, condemned. In their science, they determined that a circle is 360 degrees. They devised a crude system of latitude and longitude in order to find locations. In their world of medicine, they had more than 500 different potions and drugs, most of them rather disgusting. But nonetheless, these were devised to help cure people of their sicknesses. And so when it says here that Daniel and these others were studying literature and science and medicine, uh, this was all that was involved. There was a great deal of knowledge for that day to be had in Babylon. And these young men were to be put into a crash course. Undoubtedly, they were uh, trained to speak the language of that day, which was sort of a mix between Arabic and Aramaic. Uh, They were undoubtedly taught to use Akkadian in in writing. And then, more directly, it says that they were given food and wine to drink from the king's ration. Now, On the surface, that seems like a pretty good deal. And for most of them, they accepted it that way, but not Daniel. 
Because Daniel and his three friends understood that this food, which was delectable uh, and plenteous, and the wine, which was the best of the nation, that all of this was first presented to Marduk and the other gods of Babylon, and then presented to the king and to his court, so that they might eat of it. And they wanted these four people, Daniel and his friends, wanted nothing to do with that, because they felt that that would defile them, to eat that food that had been offered to these pagan deities. In addition to that, some of the food may have been unclean, according to the law of God. Some commentators say also that to sit down uh, in this kind of a meal, which was provided by the king, would be for them to accept uh, friendship from him. And uh, they did not want to do that. But nonetheless, they were provided all of this very best. And uh, again, it was to fully make them Babylonians. And then the, the crowning thing, we might say in one sense, was the giving of a new name to these people. They took away their Hebrew names, and each name was associated with Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, and gave them new names that each one was associated with the gods of the pagans in Babylon. So they took away even the identity of their names, how they were known, and tried to relate them to the gods of Babylon. You see, the attempt here is to destroy anything that had to do with the land, the culture, the God uh, of which they learned when they were being raised. Now, with all of that presentation, do you understand how Daniel's world collapsed Do you see how everything that he had been brought up with, his own identity, his own personhood had been attacked? How the very food that was put before him was given to him in order to identify him even further with this new place, this new culture? With all of this pressure to change and to conform, with every outward support removed, Every visible sense of identity with the past gone. It would seem impossible, wouldn't it, that anybody could withstand this kind of pressure? His world collapsed and he seemingly had no choice but to adapt to all of this just in order to survive. But what did Daniel do when his world collapsed? I want to point out to you in the first place... He held to his faith. He held to his faith in the God of his fathers, the God of the scriptures. When your world collapses, that is the place to begin. Because that is the first place that is attacked. When your world collapses, the first question that comes to your mind is, where is God why did God let this happen to me? Here I was worshiping God, trying to serve God, and now look what's happened to me. My world has collapsed. 
Daniel gives us the example of the first thing we must do. And that is we must keep hold of our faith in God. And not allow that to be set aside. The second thing I see that he did was that he held to his convictions. Daniel held to his convictions as to what was right and what was wrong. It specifically is related here to the food and the drink that was set before him. It says in verse 8 that Daniel made up his mind. The King James says Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not allow himself to be defiled by these foods. He had no choice in the matter of the name. He had no choice in his education, his re-education. He had no choice in the fact he had to live in Babylon. But he did have a choice about the food. He could say no to that. And so he did say no. It seems here that Daniel purposed that he would not defile himself ahead of time. So that when the trial came, when the test, when the temptation came, he was already prepared to say to the commander, No, I'm not going to eat of this. Oh, that's wise. Before temptation ever comes to you and to me, we need a purpose in our heart ahead of time what we're going to do at that moment. Else we may, in the pressure of that moment, make the wrong decision. Daniel, when his world collapsed, not only held on to his faith in God, but he held on to his convictions about what was right and what was wrong, and he determined ahead of time he would not allow himself to be defiled. Young people, men and women listening to me tonight, let us likewise purpose ahead of time in our hearts that we will hang on to our convictions come what may. That what God says is right is right, and what God says is wrong is wrong, and God says that for good reasons, and we will obey the Lord. Then I noticed that Daniel held to his courage. Daniel held to his courage to obey God rather than to succumb to the, to the pressures, whatever the cost. Notice that initially he simply sought permission from the commander. And the commander basically said, <clears throat> Daniel, I'm scared to grant this request to you. Even though God had given Daniel favor in his sight, his fear of Nebuchadnezzar was greater than the favor that he felt for Daniel. But Daniel said in verse 11 to the overseer, whom the commander had appointed over them, please test your servants for 10 days. You see, Daniel didn't give up the first time. After that first uh, request that they might not have to eat these things, Daniel might have said, well, you know, I tried. I did the best I could. I said no, and... I have to do it anyway. I mean, most of the other people are going to do it, and my parents are gone. I'll never see them again. And I might as well go ahead and compromise and defile myself. I've tried to hold my line. I've tried to hold the standards I know that God wants me to hold, but it just hasn't worked out. But Daniel held on to his courage, and he persisted. And when he couldn't get his way with the commander... He went to the person under him who was directly over Daniel 
to this man who's called the commander of uh, the, or to the overseer rather, of the, uh, the, the commander appointed, and he offered a test. And he said, test us for 10 days. Do you see the courage of this young man? Remember, we're talking about a young man in his mid-teens here. Daniel was willing here to push it. He was willing to say no again, rather than to betray God. Daniel was willing that he should stand alone with his three friends than to go with all of the rest. He held on to his courage. When your world collapses, you need to hang on to your courage. You need to do what is right. Avoid what is wrong. And keep pursuing that with courage. And then finally I noticed that he held to his respect for authority. Daniel is very polite in verse 8 in his initial request. He phrases it that way from the language that is used here. Uh, he goes through the, the proper authorities. We notice that Daniel was not rude. Daniel was not a fanatic. Daniel was not belligerent in his attitude. Daniel gives us a wonderful example here in his respect for authority. It is possible for us to advance our convictions in such a way that we destroy our testimonies. Daniel held on to his convictions, his faith, and his courage, and at the same time, he was courteous. He was a man who gives us here a tremendously important example of how to say no when that's the right thing to do. Daniel shows us what to do when our world collapses. There's one final thing I want to point out just in closing, and that is this. Behind all of this that we see is a sovereign God. Behind what happened with Jehoiakim, it says the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. God was behind that. God had warned his people again and again. In fact, God even said to them, it will be a time of 70 years. He said, you mark it on your calendars. It'll be 70 years that you will go into captivity because of your disobedience. Why 70 years? Common question is asked, and God tells us why in his word. For 490 years, the people of Israel had failed to keep a law of God dealing with the land. It was called the sabbatical year. God had established the law that his people should till the land for six years. But on the seventh year, they were to allow the land to be idle. And then again, they would till it for six years. But every seventh year was to be a sabbatical year. And for 490 years since they came into the land, the people had failed to do that. <clears throat> and so God says, I'm going to calculate that as 70 years that you've not kept. And the land is going to be idle for 70 years while you're in captivity. That's why it was 70 years. 
We notice the sovereign God also gave the youths favor in the sight of the commander. God granted Daniel favor and compassion. God is working behind the scenes here. God sustained them physically in this test. He allowed them to eat this vegetarian diet with the result that they were healthier than those eating this wonderful, delicious food. God sustained them. And not only that, God gave them wisdom and understanding in all of the training they had. That doesn't mean they didn't study. I know they had to go through the, the process of studying and laboring at the, the scrolls. It's like some of you are going to have to do yet tonight before tomorrow when school begins. They had to study, you see, but then when they did their part, God blessed them because of their obedience and gave them understanding and wisdom. Then beyond this chapter, we see that God gave to Daniel the privilege of unveiling the, what we call the times of the Gentiles. <clears throat> this is the prophetic portion of Daniel that we're going to study in upcoming weeks. But God gave to Daniel the privilege of unveiling what he was going to do for the next several hundred years. And in fact, what he was going to do in time that is yet to come. Maybe what's going to happen in the 1990s. Maybe. The times of the Gentiles began when Nebuchadnezzar carried away Judah into captivity. From that time, basically, until 1948, that land in Palestine was dominated by Gentiles. The fact that the Jews have it back today, I think, is significant in the light of biblical prophecy. But again, that's in the future. We see God unveiling through Daniel what he's going to do through the Gentile nations. By the way, there's a philosophy of history that we come to because of all of this. That is, a history is not an accident. But history is what God is doing in the affairs of man. The Christian's philosophy of history is that God rules over the destiny of men and nations. God sets the limits. God controls history. And we see what has happened in, uh, in Russia. Remember Brezhnev? Do you remember him? Do you remember the American president kissing him? Like a Judas? Pardon me. That's my opinion. Do you remember Khrushchev, some of you? Do you remember? I can remember the day, I was very young, but I remember the day when he pounded his shoe in the UN saying, We will bury you. Do you remember that? Where's Khrushchev today? Where is Brezhnev today? And why is Gorbachev doing what he's doing? God is the God of history. And I can't tell you all that's happening over there and why God is doing this or that, but I can tell you this, it is no accident that Gorbachev is here when he is. And it's no accident that what's happening in Eastern Europe this very night is happening. For a long time, things just seem to be rather stable, unchanging. 
in that part of the world. And all of a sudden, in a matter of weeks, literally, God has just turned things loose. And I think we'll see some of that as we work our way through the book of Daniel. We see God preserving the Jews throughout their time in Babylon. <clears throat> it was a sad time for them, but it was not a, a concentration camp. Uh, the Jews were able to conduct business in Babylon, so much so that many of them didn't want to go back home after 70 years. They lived outside the city walls in a particular area, kind of a suburb-like, uh, and God took care of them in Babylon. But they weren't in the land of the promise. It was a time of judgment upon them. I think the best way just to bring it to a conclusion is to read a paragraph from Chuck Swindoll who says, in a world filled with people who rebel against the divine king, it is inevitable that believers of all ages will face situations in which their convictions will be challenged. We who are parents need to prepare our children for those occasions by both teaching them God's truth and modeling integrity. Just time out for a moment. That's why Daniel was the teenager he was. Because his parents taught him and modeled before him, apparently, their convictions about God and about what was right and what was wrong. And Daniel so caught that by the time he was a teenager that he could go to the situation he did and uh, follow that example. Swindoll goes on to say, And all of us who are Christians need to personally commit ourselves to living God's way, regardless of the temptations to live otherwise. Recalling and applying two principles that are embedded in the first chapter of Daniel will keep us, help us keep that commitment. Number one, inner conviction can overcome any outer pressure to compromise. That's an important principle. And number two, God-honoring convictions yield God-honoring rewards. You know, folks, when we're true to God, God will honor us. It is possible to live separated in pure life in the midst of cultural pressure to do everything wrong. It is possible to obey God when your world collapses. It is possible to be God's man, God's woman, God's teenager in the midst of a new Babylonian culture today and be blessed of God, and succeed, and be used of God to make a difference. Oh, God, help us to be Daniels in our day. Lord, I pray that this chapter of your word will be richly applied to our lives by the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.